Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Friday, March 3rd, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the link that says Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description of the primary tool in this work. It's a description and explanation of the tool called the Reality Management Worksheet. It's a tool I've been using for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And If you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. <clears throat> If you tap on that icon, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it's been our experience that the more people use these tools in their lives, the better their life gets. And secondarily, because it also tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we encourage you to give us a call at 563-999-3581. And if you call that number and press 1, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number 
turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. And we greatly appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service. And if you would be so kind as to let us know how we can be a better service to you, we will endeavor to live into that. There's also a whole host of audio files available, both on the whyagain.org website through which the archives of this show for the last 12 plus years are available. And there's also the um, the website at um, mindshiftersacademy.org and the mindshiftersacademy.org website also has some, I'll call them uh, highlight files, audio files. It's got an abbreviated version of the worksheet process, what I call the mental short version. It has the shows from last year that we were reading through the um, Way of Mastery with Commentary, and um, it's got all kinds of other little benefits, and um, mindshiftersacademy.org. It also has the information for how to join our support groups that happen on Tuesday and Thursday nights, absolutely free through Zoom. If you have any interest in joining us or you know somebody who does, we would appreciate your passing that information along. There'll be another couple of support groups happening again next week, Tuesday and Thursday night, 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central. And uh, as we talk about on a regular basis, the benefit of doing these worksheets and doing this work to understand the process and the dynamics underlying the worksheet process and the philosophy behind how it works, Doing that in a community setting is far more rich and energetically powerful. So we encourage people to join us as they wish. Area code 610, Susan, welcome. Hi. Hi, Dr. Tim. I have been reading and probably confusing two people, David Switch, is that how you pronounce his name, and um, Christian Sundberg, who I've got Christian's book, and I have a couple of questions. Why don't I just start off with those? But they are mind-blowing. And one of the things Christian talks about is how crucial and central our intent is. And I wonder if that's the same word that in the way of love, she called it desire. I believe it is I the never, same. Oh, good. Because I never got a feel because desire is a, is a strong feeling word to me. And intent. Well, but, but, but slow down and, and let's go back to the entire lesson four in the way of mastery okay. offers us a different definition 
a different and operational definition for desire. And, you know, the word desire, that, that strong emotional energy that you're talking about, that word in our culture has all kinds of emotional loadings on it. Mm-hmm. And when we were going through the Way of Mastery many years ago in the support group and we got to Lesson 4 and we started talking about the energy of desire, people were getting triggered all over the place, right? Uh-huh. Left and center. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up, I found myself saying, listen, if that word triggers you, then go through the, the, the book and every time you see the word desire, substitute the phrase, the energy of creation that wants to express uniquely through you in this moment. Mm. So as you work with that and you read that over and over again and you massage the meaning and you go into your own private meditation, you will probably understand that what the word desire, this energy of creation, this very, very subtle but very powerful energy has nothing to do with the actual objects or people or dynamics that we end up wanting or craving. Mm. It has to do with this very subtle energy that moves through us and on that energy rides these impressions that have us give rise to, oh, I want a red car, or oh, I want a a partner with a six-pack abs, or oh, I want a, a large bank account. It's not the target that's important. It's the energy of movement, that very subtle but powerful energy moving through us, which is what they're referring to when they say desire. Without desire, the the creator wouldn't have created anything. Mm. Without desire, nothing would be in existence. If we as human beings never had any desire, we wouldn't feed ourselves. We would just die. We mm. wouldn't build shelters to protect ourselves from uh, the, the harsh environment if we didn't have a desire to be more comfortable. And it's not... The energy, it is the energy that that these specific desires write in on that's important. That's the focus. Mm -hmm. So my way of talking about it to the support group all those years ago was to say, just think about this phrase. The energy of creation itself, the thing that makes the, the flowers bloom in the spring and it makes the, you know, the, the fetus grow from the sperm and the egg, this powerful energy that gives rise to everything you see wants to express uniquely through you in each moment. Can you slow down? Can you suspend your thoughts about it enough to tune into it and let it express through you? So perhaps we should amend... You know, when I said earlier, I think maybe the word intent for Christian Sundberg is the same as desire. I think they're kind of 
that if you hold the intention to slow down and tune into this energy of desire, you can get there better. I have I have a whole series of quotes from the the Sundberg um, essays lined up to read today. If nobody raised their hands, because I had somebody oh, cool. that, that I was talking to yesterday who they were talking about having a, a an extended conversation with a friend where there's a debate going about whether or not the intellect and my thoughts about the thing are are the way to spiritual growth or freedom and he had this this really deep spiritual experience that went beyond words but as he was trying to put it into words after the fact when it started to fade he he wrote some things about how the the mind the intellect isn't isn't going to be can't even formulate words about this being in the moment experience this this aliveness so i went into the sundberg book and there is a um like in in the table of contents there's um a, a reference where it says something like um intellect is not the answer mm. i'm trying to find what the actual title is here um i will come up with it here in just a moment but it's it, it's that's pretty close right so you know, it, in the beginning of the book, if you're listening to it on Audible, remember how we talked about how difficult it is because yeah. there's all these numbers? Well, right. that's really basically just the table of contents that he's reading. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there is a, um, a series of statements at the beginning of that that give reference to if you want to talk about how the intellect is not the answer, then here's a bunch of essays. And it, it, it says, part two, essays organized by theme. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those <laughs> themes is um, related to how the intellect is not the answer. Yeah, I see. I... I have that book in 36, yeah. You know, that essays. <clears throat> well, so so when I looked that up, it has a series of essays, and that's what I was going to read today. Okay. That is sounds that in good. line with what your, what your next <laughs> yeah, set sure. of questions is? Well, I was so, just, I'm just so, hmm? go ahead. Go ahead. I was thinking about Michael. You know how he he watches scary, horrible movies or movies about horrific people who are on the Are you talking about Michael Rice? Michael Rice. And I read this sentence, which is a page before that index you're talking about. He says, from the higher 
spiritual vantage point, we ourselves often choose to re-engage the darkness of what we have actually been so as to evolve past it, expand in due measure. And I was thinking that's what Michael's doing, and that's what I've been avoiding doing. I have enough darkness right in my own daily experience, so to seek it out in a movie seems either very rash or brave or both. But I just thought that was a very interesting sentence. <clears throat> okay, well, what, what I talk about when people bring that up is that, and I know you've heard me say it, but we'll say it again, Michael Rice didn't start doing that. He started out avoiding upsetting things in movies and and he and he avoided it for a lot of years mm-hmm. and then he started doing his work yeah the work that that was so powerful and effective for him and the more he did that work the stronger he got and then at a certain point he got the guidance that said hey wait a minute michael if you actually believe this work, then what's showing up as flickers, flickers of light on the screen and vibrations of sounds through speakers can't cause your upset. So why don't you put this to the test? Mm. And go there with your your worksheets in hand and sit in the movie and dismantle the upset that you're taking with you into the theater that's just getting resonated by the interpretations you're making of the lights flashing on the screen and the sounds. Because mm. other people in the theater are throwing a different interpretation on it and thoroughly enjoying the movie. Yeah. That was it's well not, said. It's not the outside event, whether it's an actual event in my life or the the representation of events that some writers and some screen players have put together. That's not what causes my upset. What causes an upset in me is the interpretation I choose and place on that and how that's resonating trauma energy I might have in me. Right. All true. And you have said it before. And I should be very and so, careful. And, and so stay with, well, but stay with this idea that right now I really like what you just said because it's just exactly what I think, and therefore I think you're a genius, right? Because if you agree with me, you got to be a genius, tongue in cheek. But you said I have enough going on in my life right now to deal with to bring the energy of love to, to dismantle my upset without having to go to disturbing movies. And I want to say yes, yes, and yes. And that's exactly the kind of message I get from people like Christian Sundberg and some of these people who've had near-death or near-life experiences. You know, just do that. Just start using mm-hmm. the tools in the things that are going on in your life these days that 
seem to resonate upset in you when you choose an interpretation of them. And as mm-hmm. you do that, you'll get stronger and stronger. You will have more and more capacity for holding the space of love in more and more difficult situations. And and also notice that when you do that and you think about, well, Michael does this and I think it's great, and Christian Sundberg says this and I think I should do that, you are right there at the cusp or the edge, and maybe you've gone over the, the cliff of living your life by comparison. And as all these great spiritual teachings tell us, that's not useful. Mm-hmm. Guy Finley says, remember, most of the, pain, the emotional pain and suffering you experience in your life is the bitter fruit of a comparative life. Mm-hmm. When you start comparing yourself to others, you're you're loading up extra pain and suffering in your life. So catch that, back away from it, do some worksheets about it, dismantle any thoughts that say you should or you need to or they're better Mm -hmm. than you because they are. I have news for you. There's nobody on the planet that's more spiritually advanced than you. Not Michael Rice, not Christian Sundberg, etc. They're dealing with their stuff, you're dealing with yours. Which leads me to another thing that I've been thinking about and talking about with Tim Bingham, but I know you want to read your stuff on there too, so is it okay if I say something else? Yes. What can you say? We've been having this discussion, which started on our Zoom group, uh, the life after death, uh, near-death experiences stuff that David Sewich talks about. We were talking about what we would, what conditions we would want to have for ourselves if we returned to Earth for another lifetime. I was telling you about this. And we started off with very basic things like, well, it would be great if I could have a house and be warm and have enough food and have enough money and have a good body and have have health and have good relationships. And it went down and down and down until finally last night I was lying in bed and I was thinking, you know, I've known lots of people who have had all those things and they haven't been happy. So maybe we should start from the other side. What if we were born with a wonderful capacity to love and see the best in other people and the best in every situation, then you could practically endure anything. So I was thinking, well, Tim Bingham was saying, well, I wouldn't want to be born in a very poor country where we were just scrounging for food. And then I remembered my son who went to Nablus and was a doctor without borders for a stint. And they had nothing there. But he kept saying, those people were so happy. Every little thing meant so much to them. And here I am, a rich man in comparison. And I'm not like that. I want what they have. I want that. That would be my first characteristic for myself if I 
you know, could choose again my nature, my very nature, if it could be a loving nature. And basically, that's what Sundberg is saying is love is it. If you've got that, you're, everything else will fall into place. Yes, and so, and let me just throw a wrench in your discussion with your husband. Okay. What if when you're not in the physical body, when you're not constrained by the language and the conditioning of your family and your culture, what if your vision of what's important and what you would like to have in your life would be a hundred times more different than the worldview of a four-year-old and what the four-year-old wants and the worldview of someone who's 125 and knows they're going to, to take their last breath in a few days. That the wisdom, the life experience, the learnings that have come from 125 years of life put that person light years away from what the four-year-old understands about what's important mm-hmm. and what would be good, etc. And what if the experience you're going to have after you drop the body, when you're in the non-physical, when you might be planning another physical existence, would be a hundred or a thousand times more advanced or a bigger gap between what you're thinking now and what you'll know then than the four-year-old to the 125-year-old. Okay. So you're saying we can't conceive. Not even possible. We can't even answer that question. Not even possible. And then the other thing to consider is that they keep talking about how we come here mostly to get stronger to be challenged in certain ways, to challenge our weakest spots. So take a look at the Christian Sundberg experience. Right? In a very simplistic way, we'll just talk about it. These words don't mean much of anything, but he, it's like he, he walked down the street in the non-physical. They don't have streets. He didn't have a body. He couldn't walk. But he's walking down the street in the non-physical, and he has a conversation with somebody, and he goes, wow, you are the most joyful, blissful person, radiantly beautiful person I've ever experienced. Do you feel as good in, in yourself as I sense from you? And the other person says, yes, I do. And Christian says, oh, I want that. And the other guy says, yeah, everybody says they want it. Well, how did you get it? How did you get to be, you know, I'm in bliss. I'm in a non-physical form. I'm, you know, only pretending to walk down the street. But you seem to have accomplished something that I couldn't. How did you get that? He said, well, I had some experiences in a physical body. And Christian goes, what is a physical body? I don't even know what that is. Eons later, Christian has gone through whatever process there in the non-physical And he's not Christian, by the way, right? That's the name we have here. But his consciousness decides, I'm going to have 
I'm going to have a. I'm going to take a an attempt at this. I'm going to go have these experiences and grow. But this is like going to the gym. I've got to go do things that are really, really difficult for me to do, and strengthen the muscles that allow me to do it better under various conditions. And so, he has a lifetime or two or fifty thousand. We don't know. And one of them, he's a woman who's had a baby. And then she gets pregnant again, and she is terrified of the pain she's going to have in giving childbirth. Mm-hmm. And that experience is so devastating for this soul Christian that he runs from fear and now he lives that life, and he the life ends, and he's back in the non-physical. And they say, okay, you're ready to go build some more muscle and learn how to be loving in different situations? And he says, okay. And they said, good, we're going to put you in a situation where you're going to have really big fear. And he goes, no. Hmm. And so he waits and waits and waits, and then he thinks he's ready, and then they design a life for him that's, you know, pretty pretty perfect for what he wants to do to achieve this blissful state and get even stronger at his weakest point. And he starts to become part of the, the physicality of the fetus and gets the shroud and he forgets and he gets into the panic and the fear. He gives into the fear and he says, get me out of here. And the fetus says, right. you've mm-hmm. told me this story, you remember this. Yeah. Well, why why would he do that? Well, cuz he doesn't want that pain and suffering. He doesn't want to he doesn't want to challenge his weakest link in his chain. He doesn't want to be challenged in his weakest you know, shortcomings. So then he goes back into the non-physical and then he's got to do something at the in in the non-physical realm to strengthen his ability to tolerate that weakest, that worst energy. Like for you, it's anxiety, right? Your favorite miserable is anxiety. For some mm-hmm. people, the, their favorite miserable is rage. For some people, like Christian, it was this terror. Mm-hmm. For some people, it might be loneliness. To have, you know, and and to just think of it in, in these terms. Is this how it actually works? I have no idea. But when you're trying to conceptualize this, Please know you're in the realm of the intellectual, and the answer Mm -hmm. is not in the intellectual. So here's the segue into that business. On page 36 in that book, one of the headings is answer not in intellect, Mm. and it gives a series of essays, 21, 29, 41, 62, 70, 73, 75, 80, 118, and 147. And it says, if you want to understand a little bit more of what we mean when we say the answers you're looking for are not to be found in the intellect, read these essays. So here is lesson essay number 21. The title of it is, Love is More Important Than Knowledge. And it reads, one of the main 
jobs of the ego is to try to prove one's worth to oneself. For much of my own life, I justified my worth to myself, at least in part, by establishing an intellectual capability. I learned facts and skills. I grew my knowledge of various subjects, and I learned a foreign language. I earned a near-perfect grade point average in college. I worked hard to excel in my career, and I became, quote, the best, close quotes, that I could be at various activities. Eventually, I had a long list of intellectual accomplishments to present to myself to prove my worth to myself, and it worked Mm. for a while. Eventually, I made a profound personal discovery in the big picture, capital B, capital P, in the big picture, intellectual accomplishments are largely unimportant. Sure, they have some effect in the physical, and of course there is, in fact, certain spiritual value to my having achieved them. But in the big picture, from the view of the larger actuality that supersedes the entire environment, and he has here, quote, rule hyphen set, close quotes. The entire environment and in the rule set of this physical reality, my knowledge, my skills, and abilities actually mean very little. They are not the reason why I'm here. Hmm. I found that what is important is, in fact, intent. What is important Mm. is striving to have the truest quality of intent, meaning genuinely loving intent in all the choices that I make. So put crudely and succinctly, love is more important than knowledge. You and I are living in a, quote, virtual, close quote, reality that is metaphorically like a giant video game. Our world is an experience constructed within consciousness. When the human body's character dies, we do not. That's okay because fundamentally we don't need the skills or the body. What we do take with us rather than the character skills is our own increased ability to actually play the game with a higher quality intent, an intent that is more loving and less fearful. We learn how to actually be more loving and less fearful. Every time we play, we tend to get a little bit better at seeing past the illusions and making loving choices. Every time we play, we conquer some fear. As we integrate experience, we evolve. Our knowledge does not survive in its current limited form, nor does it need to. However, our wisdom, our genuine love, that survives forever. So that's the first essay. Mm. The second essay is titled, The Jungle of Confusion, and it reads, We live 
in a jungle of confusion. The veil of amnesia and the illusion of separation cause in us a profound state of, quote, limited information in which each individual must use limited data to decide on what is true. Seven billion people on earth, and each one has his or her own perspective. Most think they generally have the world figured out. And many spend an incredible amount of energy trying to tell each other what to think. So think about this, and here's a little sidebar. Think about this in terms of Dr. Michael Rice loving to quote this Harvard research. 10,000 brain cells are firing in your brain and at one twenty-fifth of a second, and you're able to pay attention to nine single bits of that 10,000 that your brain is processing, and there's 20 trillion bits of data hitting your senses, and you think you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And there are 7 billion of us on the planet in that state. And many of us think we know what's going on and that we should tell other people what to think. The quote goes on and says, advertising, religion, social media, all of these add to the cacophony of individual and group messages to other individuals and groups. And as technology proliferates, the volume of the jungle increases. Yet, so very much of it is confusion because none of the messages sent in metaphor or word can successfully communicate the full scope or the deeper truth of, quotes, in all caps, what is, what Michael Rice would call actuality, close quotes. So he says, forms, words, or ideas cannot fully describe that which is beyond them. And since conscious awareness is fundamental, the only way that the individual can encounter deeper truth is by personal experience. Striving to experience deeper truth is a very individual and a unique process that certainly cannot be articulated in words to you by someone else. But one important channel can be identified, and that is the unadulterated experience of the now, capital N, now, rather than the consideration of some idea. The more one is able to be fully present with one's entire actual experience of the present moment, the better one will become at being able to see past the deep construct of one's own thoughts and judgments and beliefs. The more one is able to see past those thoughts, judgments, and beliefs and simply experience the now moment itself, the closer one will be to allowing oneself to be touched by glimmers of the ineffable truth which transcends all the metaphors of the entire world. The sounds of the jungle can be very distracting, but fortunately, nothing can thwart your free will ability to choose to focus inward to the silence rather than to the noise. 
And that focusing inward to the silence, this is another sidebar, is exactly what the way of mastery is trying to get us to do in lesson four, where it talks about the energy of desire. To slow down, to do specific exercises, to get quiet in the mind, to ask yourself, what do you desire now? And just let it come and then write it down. And then clear your mind and take a relaxed breath and ask yourself, what do I desire now? Let it come write it down, clear your mind, and continue that as an exercise so you simply slow down, tune into the silence, and choose to look inward rather than listening to all the noise. Mm. So that's the, that was the second essay. The third essay mm. says thinking as distinguished from being. And the essay reads, when you are thinking, you are lost in a dream of form. When you are being, you just, quote, are, close quotes. No distinctions are necessary, and all possibilities exist. The intent to dwell in the now, and this is in quotes, quote, in the now, close quotes. The intent to dwell in the now is often referred to as being, quote, present, close quotes. Being present is like looking at a sunset and fully experiencing its beauty in the moment. You're simply being present with the experience rather than quantifying or judging the experience with thought. The sunset admirer does not begin to think, quote, the sunset should be more pink, close quote. Mm-hmm. So because whenever one does that, she is no longer experiencing the sunset, but instead she is judging it. God often speaks to us far more clearly in simple presence than in thoughts or judgments. If you slow down the momentum of your thoughts and go far enough into the present moment and allow yourself to completely surrender to it without judgment, you will find that rather than nothing being there, Everything is there. You will find your awareness exists beyond the boundaries of your body and that you can experience your being, which transcends your entire physical identity and all of its thoughts and judgments. The only things that separate you from that native transcendence are the thoughts, judgments, and beliefs you have decided to cling to and formalize over a lifetime. Present moment, this very moment, right now, the great depths of your own being are available to you in this very moment. While the momentum of your thoughts and judgments may be great and may seem to keep you far from being fully aware, 
please recognize that at any time, you can take one step away from those thoughts toward the awareness of the present moment itself. Who you really are is much bigger than who you may think you are right now. And it is completely okay to explore that. Who you really are is much bigger than anything you can have words or thoughts or beliefs or judgments about. And it's perfectly, completely safe and okay to explore that. The next essay is titled, Seeking Truth Beyond Intellect. And it reads, When deciding whether something is true, especially when it comes to philosophical or spiritual topics, we tend to immediately consult the intellect. We think, quote, Does this information jive with my own understanding? Close quotes. Or, quote, how does this information fit with my existing beliefs? Close quote. We tend to think and interpret truth through intellectual understanding or through intellectually held beliefs. And yet, the larger spiritual context fully, completely, absolutely transcends the human intellect. Truth transcends form. Thus, if we wish to seek out what is true, we need to do so with more than just our minds, M-I-N-D-S. We need to do so with all of our being. Our being lasts, L-A-S-T-S. Our being is actually connected to all things, capital A, all, capital T, things. But our human intellect is only a narrow, specialized subset of what we truly are. The portion of us focused on processing the seemingly dualistic nature of our physical world. We are much much more than that. We should be careful not to confuse the shadow of man's understanding and metaphors with that which transcends all of them. Because the physical universe is not fundamental. And because it is not fundamental, it will not do to try to understand all of reality with the physical mind. Consciousness, however, is fundamental. So to explore reality, look there. And when I read that, what flashes into my mind is if you talk to scientists these days, they will tell you that the amount of mass and matter and light that they can see and account for in the visual realm or the or the measurable realm in physical is probably about 20% of the mass and matter in the universe. 
80% of what exists in the universe it goes beyond what we can register with our physical senses and all of our most advanced, quote, physical, close quotes, sciences. Mm. So if you want to know what's out there, you can't rely on your physical brain and your words and your thoughts and your intellect because it is a tiny sliver of what is out there. The next essay is titled, Creation is Vast. And the essay reads, Creation is very, very vast. It is so incredibly huge, so unbelievably complex, and so amazingly diverse that it is not possible for anyone to even remotely imagine its scope with the human mind. Our reality alone has over one trillion galaxies. Some now say twice that number. Each of those possessing an average of approximately 100 trillion stars. And I believe that I, I misquoted the number. I think the first number is 100 trillion galaxies. And each of them contains over 100 trillion stars. That's more than, you know, here's all these numbers. 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 18. You know, 22 or 23 zeros behind the one. That's many, 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 many star systems, a number bigger than we can even comprehend, and those are just the star systems not taking into account the planets that might be surrounding the stars, etc. The essay goes on and says, the universe is so big that it takes light more than 13 trillion years to cross it. Mm. Well, in that time... The universe itself expands even further. And yet, all of this scope is our universe only. That's only our universe. Our entire physical reality is, in fact, just one of a great many. So, within that unimaginably vast context, how can any of us on human, humans on earth, expect or believe that we can truly grasp the nature of reality? Well, it's, it's bizarre. And yet many on earth subscribe to simple human ideas passed down to them. They enshrine those ideas as beliefs, and then they swiftly conclude that they more or less have, quote, have figured things out, close quotes. Most humans believe they generally have a pretty accurate view of the world at any given time. We commonly claim knowledge where there is actually ignorance. Our basic assumptions about reality fade into the background. They're invisible to us, even though they color everything we are doing and experiencing in our daily lives. One of those assumptions is that physical matter is what is most real. Many, 
ponderers among us assume that materialism must be sound because we've been able to achieve certain physical accomplishments with our materialistic science. Many believe that our physical universe is all that there is. And yet, a true investigation yields a much, much vaster, quote, big picture, close quotes. It's a big picture reality that is so much bigger than the cold, basic experience that matter conveys. In fact, the experience of another reality system or other reality systems can be much more rich, more wonderful, more vibrant, and more absolutely astounding than any physical experience available to us. How can this be when we remember nothing but the physical world in which we're raised? How can such an investigation be pursued? Well, in order to have your present physical experience, you had to accept a kind of amnesia for while just a while, so that you could completely focus on being differentiated as a human. The entire you, the essence of you, your spiritual self, is so great, so vast, so connected to everything else, that functioning as a seemingly separate human being would be quite impossible if it were not for this forgetting or this amnesia. Nevertheless, you are still what you truly are. You are still spirit. Way of Mastery has a whole lesson titled, You Are Pure Spirit. You cannot be anything other than what you truly are. Way of Mastery says that over and over again. You remain as you were created to be. This lesson goes on and says, And thus, if you truly wish to investigate reality, you need to be willing to fully look into what you are beyond the human mind. You can choose to spend time with and focus on your awareness itself because that does always transcend the physical experience. Consciousness is the common denominator of every experience. So if you want to truly explore creation, start by looking there. For indeed, within the realms of creation, there are realities far more immense and far more real than the illusory physical universe that we are so focused on. And your spirit is fundamentally connected to all of it. There are three or four more, but I'm not sure that it would serve us to read them right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you get the idea that when we try to figure it out, we're just Mm -hmm. sticking our heads in the mud? Yeah. Oh, that reminds me of a um, Ralph Waldo Emerson poem. I don't, I, I shouldn't even bring it up because I've got to find it. It's about the love and beauty that's in the mud and the muck as well as in the beautiful things, but I, I should look it up. I can't remember even where I read it. <clears throat> Same idea. He was one of those geniuses. Well, that was, that was like a feast uh, and I'm coming up with the phrase that you always read so emphatically. I need do nothing. <laughs> I'm thinking, ah, well, just 
B. Yes, or redefine this in a way that learning to to be in the moment is a more valuable thing to do with your consciousness than diving into the intellectual assessment of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. <clears throat> How is your leg? Well, I had a I had a very unsatisfactory experience a week ago Wednesday with a an orthopedist that basically was bored and didn't want to talk to me about anything. And then I had a very like other side of the coin life-changingly good experience with an orthopedist yesterday and then this morning before I started everything at 7 a.m. I had an MRI so they will let me know what what the MRI shows and what options they might have to help me get more comfort and stability in that leg mm. so we'll see and no difference in how the leg feels oh no it's it's got you know i i have some days are better than others but there is um there is something mechanically that if it has an energetic and emotional component, I'm still exploring that, but I'm also now exploring the physical mechanical to see what might happen because the it seems to me more reasonable to do that than to continue taking falls and the risk of additional injury that comes with that. Oh, yeah. So... When you fall, you mean you lose control or sense of place? <laughs> listen, listen, here's what they think is happening. I have an IT band that's irritated, and I have a torn meniscus, a torn lateral meniscus. So mm. the leg will lock up. The leg will give in. It'll be uh, a, 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 a pain that feels like a knife being injected or stabbed into the side of my knee. And again, the leg buckles. And sometimes I can catch myself before I hit the ground, and other times I go crashing to the ground. Oh, geez, and you've got a long body to crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that's what's happening, and and we're looking at exploring the the physical, the mental, and the emotional remedies for this. And Mm. it's been, you know, it's been years in coming. I had uh, an MRI on the right knee done back in uh, 19 because I had a similar problem happening that was not as severe and they ended up mm. doing a, a cortisone injection which has you know has held and I have been functioning since then but this is more severe more debilitating and um, more falls and so I'm Exploring it, and, we'll, and I'll keep you posted. I, I, I don't know what the results of the MRI are yet. They just did it this oh. morning at seven. Oh, oh, I'd oh, love to know. And I trust you're back in your house with electricity, right? Yes. Yeah, I was only out for three days, and um, so I'm back in the comfortable bed in the warm house and nice. having that gratitude. <laughs> so we've done it. We've reached the Thank end you. of our hour. I need to. Uh, Thank you for the call and the uh, impetus to read those and 
have a lovely weekend, and I will uh, mute you so you can listen to the second hour if you wish. The second hour today is going to be Aramaicisms Part 3. Please keep uh, Michael and his family and Jeannie in your prayers as they go through the end of life for the mother of Michael's children. And remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. Here is your second hour. I was going to say, in Tuve Hun, and I'm going to come back to that, that word there for poor, we've got ripe, which is tuv. The E-Y sound genders this word feminine. It's the same as the ta at the end of a lot of words. And what that means is something that is a latent or you could say um, a potentiality becomes activated is the best way you can put that in modern English. And then the hun at the end means all of you who. And you know, there's one thing that's intriguing in the Beatitudes that if you don't read Aramaic, you, can't under, you won't see it. You won't see it in Greek. You won't see it in English. Is all but one of, well, actually, what? Eight Beatitudes, he says, tuve hun, which means all of you here. One of the Beatitudes, he says, tuve kun which means that he looked at one person and said it directly to that person, intriguingly. And then there's another one that actually doesn't have Tuve Hun in the beginning of it. But I'm, I'm doing this in English so you'll see it. Uh, if you look at the back, grab my business card back on the CD table and flip it, although you won't be able to pick the, it out, but I can point it to you, I actually show a copy from the ancient Aramaic Kaboris manuscript that shows two little dots that basically show up right here between what in English is the M and the S. Now what's intriguing is the reason that this Aleph, Beit, that this uh, Estrangella style of writing was written was because prior to that point they didn't use phonetic markings to record the teachings of Jesus, meaning no vowel sounds. And they had big problems with that because without vowel sounds the word changes. Okay? Now if you have M, S, K, N together let me hear you pronounce that M-S-K-N as a word. Every single person in here said miskin. Okay? Now, when you put those there, it changes it from miskin to maskin. Now, let's talk about that just for a second. This is just the first beatitude. Now, there's two sets of meanings. Actually, there's a couple different meanings that all really mean the same thing. Miskin. Now, we've got poor. Miskin, if you have it with that flat I sound, miskin means poor as in lacking. When Yesha would talk about give your stuff to the poor, he would say miskin, M-S-K-N in English. And that's what you say naturally without a phonetic marking. But when you add that into maskin, this is what that means, okay? Let's say you've got a wallet and you've got $6,000 in it and you've just got here to America and you have no job and your country is in civil war and your family was killed off. And here you are, all, everything you own is in this wallet. You don't even have a suitcase. And you're standing in New York City in the middle of the night in an alley, the same alley that you heard that crack a couple minutes ago, and all of a sudden a guy comes up behind you and grabs it. someone grabs the $6,000 out, and you turn, and he's way too far. You can't catch him. He's already turned the corner. You don't even know where he is. Every single possession that I had is now gone. I'm what? I'm poor. But I want to give you what that means in Aramaic rather than poor as in lacking. I've got a wallet, and I've got $6,000 in it, and I open it up, and I take that $6,000 out, and I put it in my pocket. The wallet is now what? Empty. Everybody breathing? Empty in spirit, which means not poor as in lacking, but empty as in open. That word empty, masculine, also means home or sanctuary. 
The word spirit in Aramaic is rucha. Spirit is a concept that the first century Aramaic mind would have had no clue what it meant. It's a Latin term. Spiritus is a Latin word that's gendered masculine, meaning that it's a physical thing. And we spend our lives trying to find spirit, yet again, in the words of St. Francis, what you are looking for is what is looking. Spirit and or breath in Aramaic, rucha, is feminine. Not poor in spirit, but empty and open and home in breath, spirit, energy, magnetism, cosmic expansion, the eternal forces of the one. Now going even deeper in this, being feminine, it means this as well. In, what do I feel on my arm right now? That's what? Breath, right? In John 3, Nicodemus and Yeshua are having a conversation and Yeshua says you must be reborn of water and spirit is what we're told in the King James. Now, intriguingly in Aramaic, what he says is maya and rucha. Maya, water, literally does not mean simply water. It means the great flowing expanse. It's at the end of Shemaya, which is the word heaven, which is also the word sky. And rucha, he wouldn't have said breath and spirit. He probably would have gone breath or, or water and spirit. He would have said water, maya, and... Because in the first century, spirit and breath were not two separate things. Spirit didn't exist in their mind because what we now think of as spirit as separate from breath at that time was simply rucha, which is breath. Now let me say one more thing. In the first century Aramaic mind, what you feel on your arm, that's spiritus. That's a masculine physical thing that we now call breath. Is everybody breathing? In Aramaic, it wasn't what I felt on my arm that was breath. That's hot air. In the first century Aramaic mind, Breath was not the hot air that moved through my lungs. It was my feminine perception of its movement. It wasn't a thing. It was the experience of this. That's what rucha is. And when you're empty in the expansion and the contraction of breath, spirit, energy, insight, growth, whatever it may be, that's what it meant. It didn't mean hot air on your arm. Is everybody clear? That's why we're out there looking for spirit. And as an example, I asked the questionable science ever find God. People are like, oh yeah, the super string theories and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's interesting. Because quantum theory says that as you observe, you create. Which means that whatever they're finding is them. And what they're not realizing is they're looking for what's looking. What they're looking for is what is looking. God is not thing, God. And that's a concept in Aramaic that it doesn't exist in Christianity. Allah, the word for God in Aramaic, means absolute only being. Interesting. You've got the ah sound, which is alaf, which means everything, lamid, which means movement, and ha, which means breath. The one lives and breathes within itself. Allah. And that's you. Is everybody breathing? If you ever feel like you're not getting something, let go of trying to understand it and just keep your breath moving. And what needs to happen will happen. If you look at that Pentecostal experience where all kinds of awesome things happen and the tongues of fire upon their heads, the Greeks tell us that Yeshua breathed on them. It's hmm. not what it says. It says he breathed them. He showed them how to stay connected to that one holy breath. 
and you'll watch people in trauma and the first thing that they do is cut themselves off from that whole breath and when they cut themselves off they literally cut themselves off from the eternal forces now they're locked within their own parameters that is what is their life experience and what's in their genes you look at that story about the sins of the fathers are passed into three and four generations what are they talking about they're talking about the energy patterns and when we're locked in you know, the sins of the father are passed yea, into three and four generations anybody remember the second half of that passage it says yea of those who hate me it's not hate in terms of a love-hate relationship it's those who are separated from the active presence of love in which we live move and have our being and the way you separate yourself from it is by holding your breath how many people remember them telling stories about you when you were two and you'd hold your breath until you turned blue and passed out I've run into hundreds of people that that's been their experience and they spend most of their lives cut off from that flow that's designed to come through them and they live in this intellect in this nine-bit mind don't disturb my state of belief because I already know if you're in pain you don't know you would have a much more accurate understanding of first century Aramaic teachings if you were to take the Jesus teachings and just pencil out the word spirit and write the word breath above it yeah. if you do that just try it with one of those green Bibles the Gideon Bibles you get you know either on the urinals or in the the drawer of the the hotel room and cross out spirit and write breath above it now this is that phrase from is it John 20 22 uh, Jesus breathed on them this is great theology because Jesus has all the power just like Horus and all the ancient Egyptian guys and Dionysus and Osiris and Mithra Napak Lahun if it said this I'm doing this in English so you'll see it a little more clearly this Lamed which is this I told you it means movement it means on toward or at now this is something that uh, in modern Aramaic scholarship a lot of them don't even know when, that these two somewhere around 1700 years ago became interchangeable the Lamed and the Beit in terms of a prefix this means on toward or at the la sound so if it was Napak Lahun it would be he breathed on them or at them or toward them but what it actually says in Aramaic is Napak Bahun now Bah means with within or through not he breathed at them on them or toward them but he breathed with them he breathed them through that's a whole different thing not him having power that he breathes on them but what happens this is after the resurrection and he's standing in front of them if that actually happened I'm pretty sure that if a guy that I knew all of a sudden and I saw hanging on a cross and I saw his dead body and all of a sudden he's standing in front of me I'd probably stop breathing I don't know if I would today uh, but you know I definitely I would say the average person would probably catch at least a little bit if there's like a well, like I said about Minnie Pearl earlier if Minnie Pearl walked in the back door I probably would do a little bit of a you know uh, so are you getting what I'm saying here this is about what's your relationship <laughs> with Minnie Pearl here I love Minnie Pearl <laughs> we are in the south aren't we you see the difference here now here's the what uh, the problems here is the one problem we've got is that in modern Semitic scholarship it's not even acknowledged that these two had separate meanings with within or through versus on toward or at 
So if a modern, many Aramaic or Semitic-based scholars translate, they don't know the actual first century difference between the two, and they become interchangeable. And all of a sudden, the message changes entirely, just because of a single letter. Has anybody here ever been with someone the last 48 hours of their life when they were experiencing a non-crisis death? Anybody ever been with somebody? What did they do in the last 24 to 48 hours? They started to breathe like this. They connected in a whole breath, and then they'd hit a place called a still point, where they'd stop breathing altogether for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, until their lips start to turn blue. And then they'd go back, and they'd do that breath. I think that the person who's getting ready to leave their bodies intuitively knows they need to reconnect in order to process out the garbage that they're carrying with them and not have to take it with them. We're looking at the, and clarifying the original Aramaic terms in the teachings of the man named Yeshua in particular, although not exclusively, in order to understand a thought system and a healing system that is disappearing from the planet. And we're looking to restore that first century thought system that has just had such longevity, even in distorted forms, that when we get back to the original, it just opens a whole different game. So we're delighted that you're here. And uh, Dale Allen Hoffman uh, is a local Aramaic scholar, probably the most practical scholar on the planet that I know of anyway. And he's going to open with the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. And to set the tone. Yeah. We did this, anybody here last night? Uh, I'm going to come down here. What we're going to do is we're going to tone a sound together, which is the first word of the Lord's Prayer in a far eastern dialect. If you're in the west, it sounds more like abvun or abvunach, depending on where you are. If you go further into the east, it starts sounding more like awun or aun. We're going to do the aun sound. Say that once, aun. Aun. It's kind of like om, but there's an N at the end. Say that one more time. Aun. Now, I'm going to tone this sound one time so you know what I mean by toning, without talking about toning a lot. Uh, toning is essentially, just as a quick description, uh, you're basically taking a sound that's normally sacred, really it could be any sound, it doesn't even have to be a word, and you're elongating the vowel sounds and allowing it to come through as deeply as you can in the present moment. It's not singing or performance, it's different. This isn't about having a great quality voice. It's just about having an open quality heart and presence in the moment, and the sound will take care of itself. So I'll tone one time, and then we're going to do this together three times, and then I'm going to go into the prayer. Okay? And I'm just going to go into the prayer in Aramaic tonight rather than also English. Okay? And you'll understand after this. You'll feel it. You'll feel why I did this to begin. Okay? So just listen to this first tone. which is the letter nun at the end of the word, because all you're going to be doing from that ooh is just taking the tip of your tongue and resting it on the back of your upper teeth. Mm. Remember that sound. Don't forget that one, okay? So let's do aun three times.
really let this last one ring out, okay? Wide open, far beyond the expanse of this beautiful building. Last one. Oh. Now just be aware of your breath and be open. Abund Voshmaya Nitkadash. Moth. Tete Malku Toch. Nehue to Vianak Aikana. Voshmea. Ap Bearea. Hablan Lachma Dasun Kanan Yomana. Voshwoklan Hobain Wach Dahain. Aikana dab hanan shwakan lachayavin. Huela tahlan lenesiune. Ela petsan min bisha. Metul didelaki malkuthach. Wahel wateshbukta. La alam almin. Amen. From this rooted earth may all my actions flow. And so it is. Sweet. Thank you. One of the... Uh, most basic teaching of so much of the Western world is that there's something for you to fear. And it's the ever-present Almighty that if you do some sort of an offense, then you're going to be punished for eternity. And so we hear an interpretation in the Greek translations, and if you look at the Greek gods, the Greek gods were all about control and fear and you know, I mean, the atrocities they committed are amazing, and that's been transferred into the Aramaic meanings, and we're told to fear love. The creator is love. And if you look at how bizarre a concept that is, you look back into the Old Testament, it says, fear is a commandment of men. Men made that whole game up. And you've got to start to question. You've got to come out of insane belief systems in order to truly function as a full human being. And the word that is in place of that fear is really to have awe. And there's some interesting research that's come out of Stanford recently where they're researching the impact of awe on people. And what they're finding is that when people go into awe, when, when they can't process with their minds the way they normally do, and they are awestruck, that it transforms everything in them. It literally transforms their psychological state. It transforms their, the state of their health. It transforms everything. And so, what is this state of awe? What, what do you want to, how do you move into that state of awe? And... What's it really all about? Is it about 
doing the right thing for the wrong reason because we've been told if we don't do it, we're going to be punished? No, that's a thing called propitiation. T.S. Eliot gives us a, a really easy way to understand that word, which is not very popular in our culture. And he's got a poem where he says, "'Tis the highest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason." And you look at people who've been trained through fear, and they continuously work to do the right thing, not realizing that every time they work to do the right thing, they in fact are resonating a disease within their own cellular structures by doing the right thing. Trained through fear, fear being in the cell, fear being a disease to the cell, one acts through fear and ends up destroying themselves, wondering where all these horrible diseases come from when the root of the disease process is in the training of fear. And so Dale's going to talk about the I am and what that really means and how awesome it is when you understand it from the Aramaic. Hmm. One thing that I think a lot of people have heard is Moses in that burning bush and Ea Ashar Ea the I am that I am, which could be translated from Hebrew as I shall be that I shall be, I am becoming that I am becoming, I am flowering that I am flowering, I am fractally expanding that I am fractally expanding. Uh, Yeshua used a different word when he was talking about I am. One of the questions I get asked the most in the last 20 years is, all right, hold on a second, I get everything else you're saying, but there's one hook I still have. Usually it's John 3.16 is one. We might get to that one a little later, but... The thing I get asked the most is, what about when he says, I am the bread of life, or I am the way and the truth and the life, or uh, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, all these different places. Uh, all of those actually in the Gospel of Johannan, John, incidentally. Um, I put these up here on the board before we began, just thinking as an experiment, maybe it would burn its way through the board or something. It didn't. Uh, this is something that's so easy and clear to understand, and it's literally not possible uh, to understand except from the Aramaic perspective. It's not that it couldn't be said in another, in another language, but something I talked of yesterday is there's a, there's a big danger in translation without experience. And when I say experience, I don't mean past experience. I don't mean having 30 years behind you with translation. I mean open experience now in the moment. Without Gilyana the revelation, the unveiling, there's no chance of you really bringing something through because it's only going to come through in the perspective of what your mind can hold or handle or comprehend. And any translation is going to be a dumbing down. It's just the way it goes. Uh, this is something that's so easy to understand. Right here, it's got three letters, Alep, Nun, Alep. sounds like this, Anna, Anna. So if anybody knows the name Anna, Someone with the name Anna, this is what Anna means. I. Okay? I. Um, it could also mean I am. But this is, look, this is very, it's a very specific, it only has one meaning, which is either I as in I Dale or I Dale M. If I'm going to walk across the room, I would say Anna. Technically, let me put it this way, in Aramaic, it tends to most often be pronounced, even though you can see that it's the same ah, mm, ah you can see that it looks like Anna, it tends to be pronounced as Ana or Ina, okay? Or even Inna. I'm going to show you why. Well, I don't know exactly how the connection happened, but I'm going to show you why that is in a few minutes, okay? 
It's something that's going to be more important after you see what I'm going to unpack here. Now, ana, ina, ana, this sound, if I, Dale, was going to do something, like I say, I would say, ana, going to walk across the room. You got that? Very clear. If Yeshua was saying, as an example, ana, nuhra, de alma, I, Jesus, am the light of the world, nuhra, de alma, the light of the world, or the light of creation. There's so many ways you can translate alma. Uh, he would say, Ina, Nuhra, Deyoma, I, Jesus, am the light of the world. But what's really intriguing is that in Aramaic, what's written on the page is actually this two times, not once. Now, you're about to learn a lesson in translation. If one Ina means I, what would two Inas mean? Us, we. Anything else? Who said it? I, I. Anything other than I, I would change its meaning. It's adding something that's not on the page. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you were to put two eyes next to each other and say we, in truth, what you're doing is changing what is written on the page. What would be literal is I, I. Okay? Now, this, there's a quote that I gave a couple of times last night from St. Francis. Take a breath. St. Francis of Assisi said, what you are looking for is what is looking. Not everybody's going to pick that up. If you're trying to understand it, you have 0% chance of understanding it. If you take a breath and let go, it's your only chance of getting that one. If you felt like a, even you don't quite get what I just said, then you got it, okay? So, I inside of the I, the I within the I, not the physical I, something behind the physical eyeball, but as an example, when you look in the mirror, that which is observing that reflection in the mirror under, is understanding that that's simply a reflection. The reflection is not what's real, nor is what it's reflecting. The only thing that is real is the observation or the awareness itself. Okay? I need you to breathe. Now, intriguingly... When you look at it like this, the eye within the eye, a good example of what eye within the eye is, we talked a lot about babies and holding a, ba holding a baby in the first 20 minutes of life. That's inana, I, I. Now that I say inana, even though it looks like ana, ana on the page, the way we pronounce this is, in Aramaic, inana. One of them is masculine. Masculine meaning it's With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.